0: When I was an Army chaplain, my soldiers asked me all kinds of questions about God, life, relationships, the Bible, and I answered them as best I could. They also called me Padre. Welcome to the Dear Padre Podcast. I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you're listening. I'm glad you're alive. Let's get started.
1: 5, 1 through 14, and it reads thus. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace, opposite the king's hall. The king was sitting on his royal throne inside the palace, opposite the entrance to the palace. As soon as the king saw es- Queen Esther standing in the court, she won his favor and he held out to her the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the top of the scepter. The king said to her, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given to, given you even to the half of my kingdom. Then Esther said, if it pleases the king, let the king and Haman come today to a banquet that I have prepared for the king. Then the king said, bring Haman quickly so that we may do as Esther desires. So the king and Haman came to the banquet that Esther had prepared. While they were drinking wine, the king said to Esther, what is your petition? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my king, it shall be fulfilled. Then Esther said, this is my petition and request. If I have won the king's favor, and if it please the king to grant my petition, fulfill my request, let the king and Haman, Come tomorrow to the banquet that I will prepare for them, and then I will do as the king has said. Haman went out that day, happy and in good spirits. But when Haman saw Mordecai in in the king's gate and observed that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was infuriated with Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. Then he sent and called for his friend, his friends and his wife Zeresh and Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches the number of his sons all the promotions with which the king had honored him and how he had advanced him above the officials and the ministers of the king Haman added even queen Esther let no one but myself come to come with the king to the banquet that she prepared Tomorrow also I am invited by her, together with the king. Yet all this does me no good so long as I see the Jew Mordecai sitting at the king's gate. Then his wife Suresh and all his friends said to him, "Let a gallows fifty cubits high be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged on it. Then go to the king, go with the king to the banquet in good spirits." This advice, please come on. And he had the gallows made.
0: The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As we've said before, the book of Esther is how God saves people through a series of difficult conversations. And we see Esther, this young woman who has been chosen. She's won this contest um, at great risk to herself and her family. Um, she has won this contest. She has become the queen and she has put on her royal robes. She's gone into the king's hall where he's there in his royal throne. Um, you, it's uh, hard to sort of contemplate this as modern people, the Persian empire with all its pomp and protocol and... Um, gatekeeping uh, We see a little bit of that With the royal families of England And the UK As we watch their funeral Rites this week And the coronation I guess next week Or whenever it's going to happen And yet that's a constitutional monarchy um, or And there's other terms To describe their arrangement um, The power that they wield Is considerable in that there's a lot of influence and things, but the kings of Persia, there was no Congress, there was no uh, Senate, there was no Parliament, there was no House of Lords, House of Commons, no same, no other uh, entity of non-kings that ruled that land. It was just one guy, Xerxes, Ahasuerus, this king, who wielded the power of life and death over everyone And here his queen uh, comes in. Queen is, I've said before, not a title of authority. It just means the king's wife. Um, Certainly she had authority and power somewhat in her own right, but she is definitely um, subservient, very far subservient to this king. They are not a power couple at this point. Um, You could see that with his wife Vashti and the um, amount of trouble and pain and um, resentment and abuse that happened there. And now Esther is trying to assert herself in, in his life to try to show up and be noticed to get, um, this good work accomplished. But so she's doing this. He holds out the golden scepter again, some sort of Persian protocol we see here. She touches the top of the scepter and the King says to her, what is it? Queen Esther? Um, We can imagine that sort of um, protocol being the um, welcoming or or non-welcoming. If he didn't put out that scepter and that protocol didn't happen, uh, we wonder what would have happened to Queen Esther at this point. But he asked her, what's going on? What's your request? I'll give it to you, even half my kingdom. Um, Ahasuerus is a talker. There's a lot of talkers in this story. Um, You know the type. Maybe you're one of them. Maybe I'm one of them. Um, We like to talk a good game. And we like to say, I'll give you up to half my kingdom. What is it? What do you need? Um, Now, whether they do it or not is the real test of our grandiose pronouncements. But here he's making these grandiose pronouncements. um, And she goes with it. And her only request is not to save her people. It's not to save her people, the Jewish people that are living there in exile, very vulnerable, not to save her people from the clutches and, uh, machinations and, um, plots of Haman or Haman and the other conspirators. It's simply to have a dinner. Again, God works through a series of difficult conversations and some of those take place over dinner. So the king, um, and the king said, and she says, bring Haman, Haman, to this dinner, this banquet. So there's two guests at this banquet. It's the king and Haman. Well, Haman gets really excited. Um, He gets really happy. It says he's happy. Um, And good spirits. You can imagine him just whistling down the street. Um, Here's a guy who has spent the last, I don't know how long of a time, plotting to exterminate the Jewish people that live in his city, in his kingdom. He wields incredible power. Um, And as he's whistling along the street, he sees poor Mordecai, um, Esther's relative who's there. He's not wealthy. He has no power. He has nothing. Um, He's there. And He didn't rise or tremble before him. Um, And so Haman loses his good mood really fast. Um, The fragility of Haman is seen in this story that with all his pomp and grandiosity and throwing himself around, throwing his weight around and all these things, he's fragile because the minute Mordecai, this guy with no power, doesn't give him this trembling respect that everybody else probably does, he gets upset. You know, we can often live for this kind of thing, for the respect of others, for the trembling of others. I know I saw it in the military for sure, people that sort of really just lived for the rank um, and the kind of deference that they were paid because they had a certain rank. And you probably see it in places you've worked, and lived, um, and the subtle hierarchies of community life, um, even in places where there is no hierarchy or in places where there isn't any assumed power, just people hanging out, having fun. Um, Some people always have a way of trying to assert themselves to get this kind of groveling respect from other people. We might do it in relationships too, thinking that maybe a good relationship is when someone's kind of afraid of us, um, these are these are all ways that Haman is moving through the world. Um, I remember working at a camp many years ago uh, when I was in seminary in college, and I noticed that there were certain counselors who had attended that camp, who then became counsel- uh, campers, and then they became junior counselors, and they became counselors. And I had a theory, and I couldn't prove it about some of them, But I think some of them did that for one reason. Every day there would be, the snack shop would open. You know how camps are, the snack shop opens. And all the kids, for just pennies, you know, just maybe 30 cents, they can get a big bag of candy. And they go up, they stand in line for like two hours to get there and they put their 50 cents on the counter and get five pieces of candy or whatever it is. And they'll do that, they'll they'll line up for And it might take a long time to get through that line. Well, if you're a junior counselor or a counselor, you get to go to the front of the line and just get your candy and go. And I had a theory that there were some people working at that camp that were doing it just for that reason. So they could go to the head of the line and get that little little preference there. We kind of do that stuff, the nice parking spot, the honor, the deference, the trembling before us. and it's hollow. It is so hollow. But people will sell their whole souls for this kind of deferential respect. Haman doesn't get it from Mordecai. But he restrains himself because he's still kind of riding this high that he's been invited to this exclusive banquet. He goes and he, get, he calls for his wife and friends. Um, he's not into mutuality of relationships. He doesn't... He interrupts everybody, get over here. I've got something to say, and everybody has to. Um, You can imagine the eye-rolling that they might have done when they heard him calling out, summoning them. Um, Friends don't summon each other. Um, People in good relationships don't demand an audience. Um, They say, hey, I want to tell you something fun or something good that's happened to me. And there's a natural sort of like wanting to be part of that. But the summoning happens. He recounts to them the splendor of his riches. I mean, this must have gone on forever. Like on and on and on. The splendor of my riches. Let me tell you of all the stocks I own and and all the land that I own. I own this house over here and this house over here and a beach house, a timeshare and a, um, a Swiss chalet. And he's going on and on about all the stuff he owns. On and on and on. And um, you can just see the people just like, yeah, we've heard this before. Thank you, Haman. Okay, when okay, you're, you're halfway through, we know. All right. And then the number of his sons. So it's not just about the money. It's about his legacy in the world. These sons who look like him, who act like him, who will then be representatives of him and build his dynasty, his legacy in the world. And they're good sons, and he's going to tell you all about them, how their accomplishments and all the things they've done, all the places they've gone, um, and and how wonderful they are. And then all the promotions that the king has honored him with. So it's not enough to be rich, not enough to have the perfect family, but he also has these honorifics, these awards that he's gotten. And he pulls out the display case, and he shows his wife and his friends, oh, what he's shown them a thousand times. Um, We see, you can see the picture that's being painted here of Haman and how he's advanced far above all the ministers. And then the icing on the cake, the cherry on top, is that I've been invited to this exclusive banquet. Um, But then all of it comes crashing down, but none of it does me any good as long as the Jew, Mordecai, is sitting at the king's gate. As long as he's alive and breathing the air, none of this matters. You see what obsession and hatred and anger will do to a person. A person of great accomplishments will be reduced to bitterness and anger and rage um, just because of his obsession and his hate of this one man and all of his people. Um, he noticed, noticed the name he calls him, the Jew Mordecai. Um, here he's putting in this racial and religious um, marker on it to show that Mordecai is a different kind of human being, that he's inferior to him in some way, that he doesn't deserve to live. He's labeled him this way um, harshly, and he is bitter and angry. This kind of racism, and and, uh, and in this case, anti-Semitism will poison the soul. It'll make someone who could probably have a pretty good life and be successful and do some good in the world, um, do some terrible things um, to other people. We, and nothing has really changed in 2,500 years since this story was told. There are still people who, are, um, who resent what they see as the success of other people, um, whether it's Jewish people in this country or around the world, or some other group of people that they see as successful. Um, or maybe having something that they don't have. And the resentment, that there's this zero-sum game, that what if, if they have something, then I can't have something. And the seed of bitterness, this root, is so evil and pernicious that we can see it in Haman's life, and we can see it in ours as well. And so, this is how this part of the story ends. His wife is just as evil as he is. And she says... I got a solution for you. Actually, his wife and friends say this. Build a gallows 50 feet high. And in the morning, tell the king to have Mordecai hanged on it. If you're now, maybe they're, they're kind of joshing him and putting him up to the test. If you're so powerful with the king, you're so tight with the king, then you could probably get this done. Haman probably can't at this point. Um, he He knows it, but his friends and wife put him up to that and say, you know, build your gallows so you can kill this guy. This is the casual cruelty of Haman. His obsession with his own reputation, his own wealth, his own power and prestige means that he's going to trample and kill anyone in his path, including this innocent man, Mordecai. The word gallows um, can mean a lot of different things. Um, one of the meanings is a a pale. Um, that he will impale uh, Mordecai on a big stick. Um, That's kind of gross and hard to to imagine, but it means to display the death of someone you don't like in a very public manner. The Romans had their crucifixion, which they got from the Phoenicians and probably other people too. Um, The Persians had their impaling stakes, the gallows, and certainly gallows where people were hung, was a common way of killing people as well. But the idea of putting him up for public display and public shame is the reason. He wants to be up there. Haman wants to be up there on the platform of the throne room, and he wants Mordecai to be up on the gallows. He wants everybody to be up, but in a different way. And so we can see the bitterness and hatred in his heart how the love of material things and worldly uh, accolades have poisoned him and made him an agent of great destruction in the world. And so he makes these gallows. Um, I don't know who's making a gallows for you today, Um, but if they are, God's gonna work it out. God's gonna take care of you. God takes care of Mordecai in the end. God takes care of God's people, the Jewish people in exile. God watches over them. And he does it through this the actions of this young woman, Esther, who has the courage and bravery to say what needs to be said, to do the hard work of building a relationship with this king so that when she does say, there's people trying to kill my people, he listens. So God is at work on your behalf, no matter who's building a gallows for you. God is at work. God will break those gallows. God will reverse the fortunes of evil and, and take care of the people that he is in covenant with. And we're thankful for that today. So be encouraged by that word that no matter what people are doing to work against you, whether they're doing it consciously, like really out to get you, or they're doing it passively, just sort of think, only thinking about themselves And they're like a bull in a china shop running through your life. And there's not a lot you can do about it. Um, That's when God is going to take care of you. God's going to fight those battles for you. Trust God. Mordecai trusted God. He had no idea what was going on at this point. Um, All he could do was trust God and hope that God would fight for him, work for him, and bring about salvation in God's time, in God's way. Amen.
2: Um, so I struggled with this. I, I my part-time friends who know me. You know, I write poetry a lot. And so um, I struggled with this one all night. So anyway, I wrote this morning, shared it with Father David, and that's how it came to be. Um, it's entitled The Great Love. Uh, two men in love for all eternity, larger than their two torsos can encompass. Yet their bodies and souls and spirits aren't intertwined. For as long as this life they are given and rejoined in the next life to come true love is this way for all to feel and learn from and draw on this is a meaning of god and life and man at his best valuing the unquantified beyond reason the things that matter most are the love-filled days of life's short course around the sun how else could man have made it through centuries of a world-filled with destruction of life force and of civilizations how else could the world write itself again and again this love of unimaginable volume and depth we are privy to witness of close and personal if one is fortunate and from a distance until it surrounds us if elsewise letting this type of all-consuming love in is the key Trusting this life force to unlock the true treasures of life.
0: Today, the church remembers John Coldridge Patterson, John Coldridge Patterson, the Bishop of Melanesia and his companions, martyrs, the death of Bishop Patterson and his companions at the hands of uh, Melanesian islanders, whom Pattison had sought to protect from slave traders, aroused the British government to take serious measures to prevent piratical manhunting in the South Seas. Their martyrdom was a seed that produced the strong and vigorous church which flourishes in Melanesia today. Pattison was born in London on April 1st, 1827 of a Devonshire family. He attended Balliol College in Oxford where he took a degree in 1849. He traveled in Europe and studied languages at which he was adept. He became a fellow of Merton College in 1852 and was ordained in the Church of England. While serving as a curate of Alphington, Devonshire, near his family home, he he responded to Bishop G.A. Selwyn's call in 1855 for helpers in New Zealand, um, which was just getting started as a colony. Um, One of the really only colonies in the British Empire that was done um, with the, um, if I pronounce it right, the Treaty of Watange, which is a um, treaty that was made with the native peoples at the very beginning, which established a very different kind of colonial relationship with the people, the native peoples of New Zealand uh, in that place. Unlike many other colonial expansions that did not have the consent and agreement um, and mutual uh, rights of Native peoples, uh, the, that that one did. And so it was a very different um, kind of enterprise at that time. He established a school for boys on North, Norfolk Island to train Christian workers that were Maori there. It is said that he learned to speak some 23 of the languages of the Melanesian people. On February 24th, 1861, he was consecrated as the Bishop of Melanesia which is a a lot of islands, so a lot of traveling by water. On a visit to the island of Nakapu in the Santa Cruz group, Pattison was stabbed five times in the chest in mistaken retaliation for brutal outrages committed sometime earlier by slave traders. In the attack, several of Pattison's company were also killed or wounded. Bishop Selwyn later reconciled the natives of Melanesia to the memory of one who came to help but not to hurt. Um, the the Christians, Anglican Christians in Melanesia um, formed numerous organizations, one of them, the Melanesian Brotherhood, which is a monastic order of uh, monks who are temporary monks. They do it for a set period of time and they um, travel around and support the churches all on these little tiny islands scattered all over the ocean. Um, and then eventually they leave that order and get married and that sort of thing and raise kids. But um, a, very, a very unique form of Anglican monasticism functioning in Melanesia and partly because of uh, John Pattison and his companions who, as, as we said, um, saw the evils of the slave trade that was happening um, and piracy and kidnapping and resisted that, um, those human rights violations there. Almighty God, you called your faithful servant John Pattison and his companions to be witnesses and martyrs on the islands of Melanesia, and by their labors and sufferings, raised up a people for your own possession. Pour out your Holy Spirit upon your church and every land, that by the service and sacrifice of many, your holy name may be glorified and your kingdom enlarged through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen.